The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking investment insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. There was a fear from markets. We probably weren't as fearful. If they got a very strong win, the Democrats, and particularly a strong win in the Senate, there were some risks that some things could happen and some more radical agendas could be put through. But that really appears to be on ice. And I think you're seeing that in the reaction to the markets even before we got the vaccine change, almost a sigh of relief from markets this outcome. And as I said, it was probably the Nirvana outcome of Biden taking the White House That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, discussing the impact of Joe Biden's victory in the recent US presidential race and the response from global markets. Welcome to Episode 4 of In The Know. The outcome of the US election is one of two important developments for investors in the past month. The political landscape in the US is changing, as Donald Trump, albeit reluctantly, hands over power to political veteran Joe Biden. What does new leadership in Washington mean for investors? What's the likely impact on US-China relations? And with promising news in the race to develop a vaccine for COVID-19, can science bring about a global economic revival? In this wide-ranging discussion, led by Magellan's head of macro, Arvid Strymon, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer Hamish Douglas shares his insights on both these notable developments and the outlook for markets as we head into 2021. All that's coming up in a moment. But first, some words of welcome from our host, Arvid Strymon. Hello, and welcome to our fourth edition of In The Know, the Magellan podcast. My name is Arvid Strymon, and I'm the head of macro at Magellan, and also the co-portfolio manager of the Global Equity Strategies. And this month, we're doing something slightly different. We're actually going to have Hamish Douglas, our CIO and co-founder in the hot seat. He's been doing the interviewing. Today, he's going to be on the other side, and we're going to be interviewing him. So welcome, Hamish. How are you today? I'm pretty well, Arvid. It's a little bit different. I'm on the other side of the microphone this time. I'm now being interviewed and looking forward to it. Now, Hamish, there's been a lot that's happened in the past month. We've had the US elections, we've had some news on the virus vaccine, the COVID vaccine, and we're really interested in getting your thoughts on this. So perhaps we can talk about those in a moment. But first, I'd like to get your views on how the investment team at Magellan is coping under the COVID restrictions. Obviously, they haven't been able to travel much at all. And so we're just wondering, how are you finding things at the moment? Yeah, well, first of all, on the team, I have to say I'm super proud of the team. In sort of mid-March, we went in lockdown pretty much when the rest of the world went into lockdown and the team's performed really strongly. We really haven't missed a beat. I think we've all got in the Microsoft Teams world or the Zooming world, spending a lot of time on video conferencing. And you're right, Arvid, we haven't travelled. But actually, I've found not travelling. I probably would have done five trips in this period that we've been in this lockdown, and I've done it from home. But I've managed to 
to speak with many chief executives around the world. And instead of going on a trip, maybe myself and the analyst visiting a chief executive, we've now got to bring 10 or 15 people from Magellan to those discussions via video conference. And that's been a real positive. But I do take my hat off to the team that they buckled down and got on with the work and, you know, had to really think about things through a period of great uncertainty from an investment perspective. And the team's done a very, very good job. Yeah, I think it's been quite an interesting experience. There's been a lot of people that have been working from home. We never quite knew how that was going to work out. So it's great that the distraction has been as minimal as it has been. So Hamish, I promised you earlier we'd talk about the election. And just for the listeners out there, obviously Hamish and I have been talking internally about the election quite a lot. And there's been a lot of swings and roundabouts through the whole democratic nomination process and then the electioneering in the lead up to the general election in early November. And we finally know what the outcome of the White House is. Joe Biden looks as though he is going to be the President of the United States come January. And we also know that the House of Representatives is going to be Democratic held and the Senate is going to be controlled by the Republicans. Of course, that's no change from before. So the question to you, Hamish, is what do you think the implications are for the investment markets of this particular election outcome? Well, Arvid, You know that you and I were never that worried about the election from an investment perspective. There were other things I'm sure we'll get to around COVID that were concerning us a lot, but there was an outcome in the election that could have spooked markets. And that was known as the trifecta, that if the Democrats took the White House and clearly took the Senate and we can get to that, it's still not certain whether or not the Republicans have got the Senate or not. We've got two runoff seats that we could talk about in Georgia that's going to happen on the 5th of January. But it looks like the Republicans may end up with the Senate. I think the probabilities would face there. And really, that's probably a Nirvana outcome for the markets, because we're probably going to have a more sensible global dialogue with Biden. He's a very experienced international statesman, as he was the vice president for eight years of the United States. He's been a very long-term senator. He sat on many international security committees in his days. And I think we're going to get a normalisation of the United States having a greater voice at the table globally. And I think the markets will like to hear that, but we're not going to see any radical change. You know, there was a fear from markets. We probably weren't as fearful. If they got a very strong win, the Democrats, and particularly a strong win in the Senate, there were some risks that some things could happen and some more radical agendas could be put through. But that really appears to be on ice And I think you're seeing that in the reaction to the markets, even before we got the vaccine change, almost a sigh of relief from markets, this outcome. And as I said, it was probably the Nirvana outcome of Biden taking the White House, but really a split Congress, which means we're probably going to see nothing radical happen. But Hamish, you mentioned the state of Georgia runoff. And can you just explain for our listeners what is actually going on there? And then as a follow-up to that, what is the likelihood of the Democrats taking the Senate in your view? And then perhaps after that, as a third question, if I can pose you a third question, is, well, if the Democrats do get control of the Senate in this runoff, what is the investment implication of that? Yeah, it's a pretty wide-ranging question, Harvard. I wouldn't expect anything less from you. Just for people to understand, in the United States, there's 100 Senate seats. So far, it's been determined 50 seats have gone to the Republicans 
and 48 seats effectively to the Democrats. There are two independent uh, seats there, but they're both Democrats effectively form part of the Democrat caucus. So it's 48-50. And there are two seats that are undecided. And both those seats sit in the state of Georgia. They were previously Republican senators here. And in the rules, there were multiple people running for their seats. And if no one got a clear majority of votes, and no one did in the elections, the top two candidates are selected in runoff elections. And now there are two runoff Senate elections in in Georgia. The incumbents, as I said, were Republicans. History would tell you that typically Republicans turn out more for these sort of runoff elections and Democrats don't. So if you went on the sort of historical analysis, you would say that the Republicans will get at least, they only need one of these seats to end up with a clear majority. So it looks a pretty tough ask for the Democrats to pick up the two seats. But remember, Georgia has now flipped. It looks like it's going to be a Democratic state in the college vote. About 12,000 more votes went for Democrats and went for Republicans in the presidential election. That was a very high African-American turnout, particularly around Atlanta, that probably swung the difference. The question is, is will they turn out again in a run-out election? You're going to see an enormous amount of money, probably the most amount of money that's ever been thrown at a Senate race in US history thrown here. Are the Trump voters going to turn up again? Are they disillusioned? So I think it's really hard to know what this turnout's going to be in this runoff. It's super important in terms of the outcome, both for Republicans and Democrats. Obviously, the Democrats have to pick up both these seats where the Republicans only need one of these seats. So the odds would skew in the Republicans' favour. So what's the probability? The betting markets are in favour of the Republicans picking up at least one, if not two of those seats. But again, these opinion polls, when it comes to turnout, can be very misleading, as we've learned time and time again. So I think you have to be prepared that either outcome could happen here. You know, if the Republicans pick up one seat or two seats, effectively we're back into stalemate where the Senate sits with the Republicans. You know, that's probably going to be neutral from where we sit in the markets today. It probably means it's going to be hard for much legislation to get passed in the next two years. And I say two years, not four years, because every two years, Congress has elections again. So there are third Senate elections and the House of Representatives goes up again in the midterm elections. So if the Republicans get up, not much is going to happen. A lot of legislation will get blocked, particularly radical legislation. And we'll probably get a stimulus bill, but it's probably going to be a very modest stimulus bill that will get passed. If it turns out that the Democrats pick up these two seats then the game changes. The question, will anything radical change? Because they'll end up with 50 seats. And some people may well say, well, how do they control if they have 50 and the Republicans have 50? It seems to be a tie. But what happens in those circumstances is the vice president, Kamala Harris, actually gets a casting vote on the Senate floor. So the Democrats would have control of the Senate, but it doesn't give them absolute control because There's a rule in the Senate called the filibuster, which means you actually need to get 60 of the 100 votes to unilaterally pass most legislation. Would they be able to change that rule? It is very unlikely because there is one Democratic senator, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who's made it clear that he's not going to support changing that rule. 
So I think if the Democrats get through, I would probably put it as a slight positive. People may think it's a negative because the Democrats could do something radical. I don't think that gives them a large enough mandate to do anything radical. I don't think they'll change the Senate rules, but maybe a slight positive because they'll probably get a larger stimulus bill through in that environment and maybe get some other legislation through, particularly when they're looking to pass a budget, for instance, in the years ahead. So I would say whatever happens in the Senate race is probably neutral to slightly positive from where we are at the moment. Obviously, if you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever happens, you're probably regarded as a disaster. But for non-Americans and for investors, I would put it neutral to slightly positive, whichever way the coin flips here. Yes. And maybe I can move on to something that you mentioned or at least alluded to earlier, Hamish. You were talking about where the Democrats don't have control of the Senate, that it's very hard for them to get bills through, which may actually hurt the companies that we invest in. For instance, tech companies, there's regulatory risk. And some of the regulatory risks, of course, could be due to new laws which come in, which are less likely now that Democrats don't have the Senate. But Some of these regulatory risks, especially for these technology companies, don't require new laws to be enacted. They could face these risks through old laws. And we've seen that through the Department of Justice with its antitrust investigations of certain companies. So I wanted to get your views on regulatory risk because the regulatory risk, it seems to have gone down because there's no likelihood of new laws being passed in the Senate, but it still exists, right? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And don't forget, technology regulatory risk for the Western world companies doesn't only exist in the United States, it also exists in countries like Australia, and particularly in the EU, regulatory risk exists. But if you look at it in the United States, in terms of our technology companies, you're absolutely right. There's two forms of regulatory intervention you can get. Legislative reform, where you have new laws being passed, And I would agree with you, that looks extremely unlikely. The chance of Democrats and Republicans agreeing on a bipartisan way forward on technology legislative reform looks extremely remote. So we're not that concerned about that. But you're absolutely right that the executive branch of government can effectively take on regulatory issues. And there's really three branches of government in the United States that can step in here. One is the Department of Justice, which is taking on Google or Alphabet at the moment in that antitrust case. The other one is called the Federal Trade Commission. And that is the body that took on Facebook during the Cambridge Analytica situation and imposed that $5 billion fine. And the other one when it comes to the internet is the FCC the Federal Communications Commission. So you've got three bodies and what happens in these commissions is the chairman of the commission is effectively a political appointee and on a number of them, like the FTC, you then have to appoint an equal number of Republicans and Democrats as the commissioners, but the chairman drives the agenda. So it then becomes very political. So I think we're going to have to watch out who Biden appoints to the DOJ and the FTC and the FCC, and really what their agendas are going to be. And what you would find is they have to work within the constraints of existing legislation, but they can effectively take companies on and force them into positions where they threaten large fines and try and get undertakings from these companies. Are we overly concerned? No, we're not overly concerned, but we're not complacent either because there are 
issues on both sides of the aisle around the power of these technology companies. And different people have different views of some things that may need to be done. So there is going to continue to be investigations and interventions by the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission and the FCC. But let's just wait to see who the appointees are and see where that goes. But I think the pressure is less because the progressive side of the Democratic Party is probably going to have less power here because they don't have a very strong mandate. Joe Biden himself has been pretty close to these technology companies over time. I think he won't want to be seen to be weak, but I don't think he'll want to seem to overreach either. And it's rumoured some technology executives are actually going to be appointed in some important positions within government, which we still have to see. And don't forget the technology companies in Silicon Valley, by their nature, are much closer to the Democratic Party than they are to the Republican Party. But we shouldn't be complacent that the risk has disappeared. It hasn't, but the temperature's probably gone down. Okay, that makes sense. And I just wanted to follow up on something when it comes to regulatory risk, Hamish. When you think about regulatory risk, obviously we have large stakes in some technology companies around the world that are subject to regulatory risk. It seems as though there are different types of regulatory risk, of course. There's the regulatory risk around antitrust or anti-competitive behaviour. There's the regulatory risk around changes to privacy laws. And there's the regulatory risk around content, so something called Section 230. So I was wondering if you could perhaps comment on whether you thought that any of those particular risks were more likely or less likely or that you're more worried about or less worried about at the moment. Well, I'm less worried about privacy risk. I do think we are going to get further regulation. California's passed legislation on privacy. Of course, Europe has led the world in terms of privacy regulation with the GDPR that came in 18 months or so ago. But the technology companies have effectively been able to put all those privacy regulations in place and they haven't materially impacted on their business model. So I do expect further progress in sensible regulation around the world on that, but not something that's going to threaten the companies. When the other risks you talk about, they actually don't kind of accumulate to all companies equally. The content risk discussion is really a discussion predominantly faced the social media platforms, particularly Facebook. Antitrust risk, most of the companies, because of their power, face some form of antitrust risk, but it's all pretty specific to each of the individual companies and affects them in different ways. So I think what you have to understand when you have any companies that get very high market shares within industries, you have to expect the regulators ultimately going to intervene to make sure efficient markets and there's consumer protection and stamping out of anti-competitive activity. And that is going to happen. And how we deal with this is obviously we want to stay very close to any legislative change in understanding how that's coming down the pipeline. But also we want to make sure we're diversified. We don't want to own every social media platform in the world. And if there was a content change, it affects everything. So we can deal with specific risks in specific companies and diversify that risk in our portfolio. But we don't hold a lot of what I would call correlated regulatory risk. We carry in company-specific regulatory risk that is then diversified in the portfolio. But the regulatory risk facing the Chinese tech companies is different to the regulatory risk facing Google, which is different to the regulatory risk facing Facebook, for instance. And we no longer hold Apple, and the Apple regulatory risks around its app store is a different form of regulatory risk. And Visa and MasterCard, they're facing regulatory risk as well. 
and we have faced that risk previously when they've tried to regulate sort of interchange rates around the world. I might change gears slightly. Earlier we were talking about new legislation and how that might pass through the Senate. Now, the Senate, of course, is not held by the same party as Joe Biden. It's going to be held by the Republicans, it seems. And the risk here that we've been talking about and we want to share with our listeners is the risk that Mitch McConnell, as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, does not pass a lot of legislation or at least does pass some legislation too late or too little. And what I'm thinking about here is some fiscal stimulus around the COVID crisis. Of course, there's more new cases, around 150,000 a day in the US appearing, and there's going to be an increased need for some government handouts, quite frankly. And so it does seem as though Mitch McConnell is a gatekeeper here, and he may obstruct any bills here, which may help the economic recovery. So what do you think is the risk of Mitch McConnell doing such a thing? Look, I think the risk, and this is on the assumption that the runoffs in Georgia, that the Democrats don't pick up the two seats. And, you know, I think that's a reasonable assumption, but that may or may not happen. We don't know yet. But let's assume that the Republicans retain control of the Senate. For Mitch McConnell, it's all politics. At the end of the day, it was a very effective political strategy in blocking Obama every step of the way in Obama's second term. And he was very, very effective at that. And he held all Republican senators together. We have to remember that Biden is a different kettle of fish to Obama. Biden is a very long-term standing senator in the United States, has a lot of political capital on both sides of the aisle. Mitch McConnell actually went to Bo Biden's funeral and their personal friends. I'm not saying Mitch McConnell's going to put his friendship ahead of his political nous. His political nous is very sharp, but he's also going to be mindful of the midterms and he will be making a political calculation what is in the Republicans' best interests. Purely blocking any form of stimulus bill at all may not be in his political interest. So I suspect what's going to happen is we will get a stimulus bill, but because it's going to be negotiated, it's going to be materially less than the sort of $2 trillion that the Democrats would want to have attaching a lot of other political agendas to that stimulus bill. But the Republicans and probably Biden's going to be pragmatic, especially in these dark days to get something done. But let's see. Make the assumption that no stimulus bill gets passed. Do I think it's catastrophic? It may feel like it in the next three to six months, but I would say we get in the second half of next year and we start vaccinating people and we can talk about where we are on the vaccines, I suspect in the second half of next year, it won't be a major issue for markets and it would have gone through it. But we could get through this period market volatility in the next three to six months as this sort of frozen political situation plays itself out. But ultimately, I think the vaccine is going to overwhelm whatever they do on the stimulus bill. Okay, so one thing that's going to be really interesting to watch under a Biden administration, of course, is going to be the relationship with China. We've seen that relationship become strained under Donald Trump, and we saw that that actually had a fairly large impact on markets when we were at the height of the trade or the tariff wars. So what are you thinking there with the outlook with the Biden administration when it comes to some of our Chinese investments? We do have some investments in Alibaba and Tencent, of course. Do you think that they will be impacted by any change in rhetoric from either side? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think the Chinese investments we have are greatly influenced 
by this rhetoric. The one caveat I would put on that is there is a risk that Trump may try and do something to make a huge statement before he departs on China. And he could put our major Chinese tech companies on something called the entity list, and that could have a short-term impact. I don't think Biden is going to leave these companies on the entity list, but there is some risk in the next eight weeks that Trump could try and do something. In terms of the Biden side of things, and just going back to the Chinese tech companies, they are facing risks, but most of their risks are internal to China rather than external to China. So I don't want to downplay that they're not facing any risks. They're facing their own regulatory risks in China that we're monitoring very carefully. And it's a very live situation within China at the moment. And that's a bigger issue for those companies than the external environment with the United States outside the sort of last gasp from Trump if he decides to try and hit these companies. In relation to Biden's approach to China, again, we have to see what his approach is going to be. There is a lot of bipartisan support for taking a tougher line on China. We've got a rising power against the United States that it has never faced before. We've, of course, got a lot of tension on trade and blue-collar jobs in the United States. A lot to do with the rise of Trumpism was led around the blue-collar side of and loss of jobs. We've got geopolitics in the Asia-Pacific. And, of course, we've got a lot of technology-related issues about superiority in the future. And these issues and these tensions are not suddenly going to disappear because Trump has left the White House. And the Democrats don't have a fundamentally different view on those core issues. I would suspect, and uh, people who know Biden well, who have informed us, we think that Biden, from our source information, is likely to change tack. He's likely to have a much more balanced approach. He knew President Xi when they were vice presidents in their previous days, and we would expect he's going to look for areas of commonality whilst using relationships with the US allies to have a firm line on, I guess, on issues around human rights, about technology transfers, about cyber theft, etc. But also look for areas of mutual interest. Climate change would be one. COVID would be another. I do think cyber warfare and cyber security and cyber terrorism is another area that they could look for some cooperation. And I think Biden will look for de-escalation, and I suspect China will look for an off-ramp in de-escalation. And it's going to be really interesting to see, because it's a political issue in the United States, it's going to be very interesting to see what the Chinese offer Biden in order to calm the political side in the United States. So, and that really comes to trade, and it probably comes to some other issues around technology transfers and opening up their markets. Are they going to effectively offer some things to Biden to effectively find some common ground? But you're not going to find Biden suddenly just opening the doors and saying all these issues are non-issues moving forward. But as I said, is we do need to watch Trump in the next eight weeks. He could do some stuff to really try and set the scene to make it very hard for Biden to back away from. And he could cause some collateral damage if some of those actions are taken. Yeah, I suspect like everything in the Trump presidency, it'll be an interesting period. Now, we've talked a lot about the election. Of course, it was a massive event and heck, it was a great ride while it occurred. It was a very interesting event. But perhaps we'll move on to the other big news of the past couple of weeks, which is the 
announcements on the vaccine trial results. So my first question to you, Hamish, on this topic is what exactly happened and how important is that? Well, the second part of your question, how is important, it is critically important. You know, this was the number one, two, three, four, and five risk issue going on in the world. What has happened so far? There were four major clinical trials in phase three trials underway. We so far have the first stage results. We don't have all the scientific papers, but we have the first stage results from two trials using the same underlying technology called messenger RNA vaccines. They're led by two companies. One was a Pfizer-BioNTech-developed messenger RNA vaccine, and the other one was Moderna. Both of those companies have released, by press release so far without all the scientific information, results of their phase three trials. They had vaccinated between 30 and 40,000 people. Both those trials are showing that their vaccines were 90 plus percent effective in getting an immune response. And so far, there are no reported material adverse safety events. In the Baderna one, there were some very minor issues around people getting headaches on the second jab, but no major safety events. And to get that level of effectiveness with no material adverse safety events being reported so far, it is the best possible result you could imagine. I would say there is one thing here is the safety data is a longitudinal study. So far is they just know some people only had their second shot a month ago. So we only know whether they've had an adverse reaction four weeks later so far. Typically, the regulators want to wait for six months to know that there's not some, in a small population set, some really adverse reaction to the vaccine. And we still don't know that. And we're not going to know that until we wait the time out and the regulators wait the time. But so far, it looks like very encouraging results. And of course, we've got two major vaccine trials using a more traditional form of technology from Oxford University and AstraZeneca and another one from Johnson & Johnson, we're waiting on their phase three trial results. So, you know, there's another few irons in the fire here as well using another vaccine technology. And of course, there's then a whole series of other vaccines in the queue behind this. Yeah, but of course, we hope that they're successful as well. You mentioned earlier something around timing. So what's the timeline of a vaccination hurdle rate? So the amount of vaccinations out there that we can really reopen the economies to a state that we can really get the economy going again. Is that sometime soon or is that sometime next year, perhaps in the second half? Well, uh, but there's sort of two key milestones here for a vaccine rollout. The, the first is what is called emergency use authorization, and that could actually happen before Christmas. And there's probably 100 million doses under a two-dose regime, maybe 50 million people. They would be frontline workers and some elderly people most at risk in high-risk categories. So that's not really going to help the world, but it will help some important people. They won't really get authorization to roll out these vaccines widely until they get the full safety data. And that's really a six-month test from the last vaccination out of these trials. So you're probably looking around March or April before they would get full authorization in sort of many of the developed world countries to start rolling these vaccines out. It then comes to capacity to manufacture and distribute these vaccines. These first two vaccines we're seeing actually have to be distributed 
at fairly cold temperatures. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has to be distributed at all times at very low temperatures, well below zero. And the Moderna one also has to be in a cold supply chain, but not quite as cold. And these vaccines need to be manufactured. And because they're new vaccines, there aren't that many factories in the world that are set up to manufacture these vaccines at the moment. But the estimates is you may be able to get maybe a billion and a half doses of these vaccines in the second half of next year. The 7 billion people in the world. So, you know, that's a, a start that we could start seeing large scale distribution of these from April and then through the second half of next year. But remember, we actually have two other more traditional vaccines in phase three trials. If they succeed in their trials, we could scale up billions more doses next year. They're actually got a much easier supply chain and there's a lot more manufacturing, traditional vaccine manufacturing facilities that could be effectively utilised to scale up to manufacture those vaccines. So, so, you know, we could start at maybe a billion and a half by the second half of next year with the two vaccines we have, assuming the safety data comes through in the next six months. But if we get these other vaccines, we could really be off to the races in the second half of next year. So people's expectations, when are they going to get vaccinated? When could they get travelling again? I would probably say second half of 2021. Yeah, and when that occurs in the second half of next year, when people are travelling, does that automatically mean that the economy is going to pick up and you're going to see a material increase in economic growth at that same point in time, or is it not one-to-one? Well, of course, there's going to be a spike in economic growth. We've seen that in Australia, that when you reopen restaurants and allow people out, we've seen very strong economic growth. But even when you get that economic growth, we don't fully recover the full damage. When you look at it year on year, we're probably still down a few percentage points even after a large bounce back. So I would expect in the second half of next year to have a large spike in economic activity, assuming economies can largely open up. It's going to be very interesting how they open borders up, whether or not people get a passport that if you're vaccinated, you can travel, or are they going to keep borders, for instance, closed until you get closer to what is known as herd immunity? Or are they going to allow individuals to travel who have got vaccination certificates? I would say they don't know yet what they're going to do. But yeah, I would expect a strong recovery in the second half of next year. I expect we're not going to fully recover. There are going to be many businesses who fail during this whole period. There's a lot of monitoriums around the world on debt repayments and rentals. When we get in a world and people are asked to then repay all this accumulated interest and accumulated rent, I suspect it's not all going to get repaid and therefore we're not going to fully recover from where we would have been absent this scenario. So don't get ahead of yourself that we're kind of off to the races or don't get over-encouraged that the statistics look so good because they will be strong numbers following very weak numbers. But assuming the safety data holds up, it's very positive news. Just on that, so you're painting a picture of, let's say, in 12 months' time, the world economy is really starting to grow again. Uh, we're a little bit below where we would have been, of course, if COVID hadn't happened. But the shape of that world economy will be slightly different because people are behaving differently, both businesses and consumers. For instance, I think there's a lot more people who are working from home and at the moment travelling less, of course. What do you think are the investment implications of these permanent changes to behaviour that's been triggered by COVID? Yeah, it's very interesting. A lot of people are talking about permanent changes. I think there's a number of different changes going on. 
Some of the changes I would just call is accelerations of trends that were already here. You know, Australia had moved a lot away from a cash-based society to digital payments to tap and go, but America hadn't tapped and go. They were using cash, and there's been a huge acceleration in America into digital payments. But of course, people haven't been travelling, so in aggregate, payments have been down, so they will come back, and a lot more people are tapping and going. There's been a huge acceleration into e-commerce. People have had shopping delivered online for the very first time. So, you know, that's an acceleration of a trend. I would say is be careful that some of it may also be a pull forward, that it could actually go backwards next year because it's pull forward demand. And when people start moving around, they may say, well, I'm not going to buy everything online. I'll go back into a store. And then online could look weak for a period. But the trend has accelerated because the use cases has gone up. You're asking what is more sort of permanent changes. And I think that is a lot harder to pick what is permanent. I do think work from home is a permanent change, but it's not as pronounced as it may appear at the moment. I think we have learned that giving people more flexibility is a personal productivity improvement, and we do not lose a lot of productivity from a work environment. There's some people who are talking about, we're going to close all the offices. I would say that is probably a far-fetched extrapolation But I do think people will end up with a hybrid work environment with more flexibility, and that will drive some changes. We may well find that we're going to have much less business-related travel expenditure in the world because video conferences appear to work. You know, two weeks ago, I was meant to go to a conference in Asia that I did two years prior. It was in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. Two years ago, that took me a week to go around those three cities and do three different seminars and to fly there and fly back in the three days I was there, that I was out of the office for an entire week. Two weeks ago, I did that same seminar via a webinar in those three cities simultaneously, and it took two and a half hours one evening. So that is a massive shift and a change. And I do think those sort of shifts may be more permanent, but there are also benefits of getting people together face to face. So I just think we shouldn't overly extrapolate, but there are some productivity savings that are going to be permanent. But again, you need to temper how far some of these things may go when you're making assumptions about the future. Yep. So... We've talked about the election and the conclusion there being that political risk seems to have come down quite a lot. We've talked about the vaccine and there the conclusion seems to be that the COVID-related economic risks seem to have come down quite a lot as well. So overall, it does seem as though the level of investment risk or the risk that's faced by investors seems to have come down. So let me ask you, what is your risk appetite now, given both of these developments over the past two weeks or so? Yeah, well, why don't I start where we were before COVID? Before COVID, we were very constructive on risk. We had rotated money into China. We believed we were going through a period of extended low low interest rates. It was lifting equity valuations. But we were also sanguine that the we were in a pretty low growth world, but we were facing lower interest rates. And we wanted to be in areas of structural change and supported by low interest rates. We then went through COVID that had a incredible period of uncertainty about what damage it was going to do to the world. I think we're starting to get a clearer picture of an exit from this in the second half of next year. And we are a lot more constructive on risk now. Now that the scientific risk is dissipating, the next six months is going to be tough economically for a lot of people in the world. But looking through that, the second half of next year, I think we're going to come out of this 
with lower interest rates. I think this COVID situation has probably extended the period of low interest rates in the world because we've probably got a larger output gap to be filled and there's more government debt. So there's going to be more caution about rising interest rates from central banks in the future. But overall, we still have some caution about next year and just how much of the economic damage will be recovered. But overall, we're almost back to the risk appetite we had pre-COVID, but with some caution that there's still some uncertainty and there's still some uncertainty about the safety profile of these vaccines. Yep. And so that's really interesting. Now, to lead into the next question, which is, well, if those two types of risk, the political risk and the scientific risk around COVID have declined, uh, there's always some risk around. And you mentioned, you know, there is still a little bit of scientific risk around the vaccine, of course. And we also talked about the US-China relationship. But what other types of risks are still out there for investors? And, and maybe I can suggest a couple or two which I'm thinking about. Maybe you can respond and perhaps come up with some of the other things you're thinking of. Uh, the first one is, well, it looks as though the economy is about to start growing. Is there a chance of higher interest rates? And secondly, no one's really been complaining about these high deficits. Is that something that may reverse? Because there used to be quite a lot of focus on government deficits and government debt in the past. Are these things that we should be worrying about? Uh, look, I think they are the correct things to have on the agenda, Arvid. Our expectation is we're probably going to be at the bottom of this cycle for some time. But ultimately, when interest rates start rising, and they will at some point in the future start rising, that is a major headwind for financial asset prices in the world. And we've seen in the past, like in the 60s, when interest rates rose from a bottom through a cycle, profits went up, but equity prices went nowhere for an entire decade. And that could happen if we go through a cycle of increasing interest rates how long is this period of these super low interest rates going to be? Will it be two years or five years or 10 years or 15 years? The answer is nobody knows. We suspect it's probably going to be at least five years, but I can guarantee this world won't last indefinitely. And rising interest rates, which is really going to be off the back of rising inflation, is going to be the painful period for investors to readjust to. But I don't want to panic people about this because there is very little pressure on that. And you're asked what will happen in the second half of next year when we get economic growth. I would be surprised because we're still not going to recover all of the output gap that we're suddenly going to get a huge increase in inflation that's going to dramatic. We may have moderately rising longer term bond yields, but I really don't think we're going to get the central banks really starting to tighten monetary policy for a number of years around the world. But let's see. But you're right. That is probably the biggest risk for investors in the world. But I don't think it's today's issues about the deficits being built up. I think this is correlated the more and more government deficits that are built up that are funded by effectively central banks buying the debt that's being issued, not directly, but indirectly buying that debt and keeping interest rates low, in a way sort of creates a cycle for politicians. It's a free lunch. Let's do it again. And the more and more they do this and run up the government debt, in some point, it's increasing the risk of the day of reckoning. You know, this can't go on forever. And the more it's taken to extreme, the more they increase the risk of inflation. And that risk is the thing that will unwind the scenario that we have. There is a little bit of truth that there are good deficits and bad deficits 
You know, I'm supportive of what governments in the world did this year in relation to what happened with COVID. You know, we could have had a very nasty, almost depression if we allowed individuals and small businesses to fail around the world and become disconnected with the economy. It was a very unusual situation. But in the second half of next year, when we're recovering, uh, I think governments need to be more sanguine around it. And if they're going to run deficits, you know, concentrate on investing in productive assets rather than just spending money and expanding the government sector. And, you know, if we're in a long period of very low interest rates and you're investing in very productive assets like infrastructure or 5G telecommunications networks, that could actually be a very good expenditure of government money. So not all deficits are created equally here. But am I concerned about it? You know, if it becomes a political norm, the government debt doesn't matter and it's free, that would be a worrying development because ultimately there'll be a day of reckoning at some point in the future. Yeah, I think those are very interesting comments about inflation. It's something that we think about a lot because of its potentially destructive impact on asset prices. So it's something that we always need to think about, but probably something that's not of material likelihood in the short term, but something investors need to think about all the time. Yeah, it's a classic boy who cried wolf syndrome. You know, the people who are harking on about inflation and currencies being completely debased at the moment, eventually they're probably going to be right. But calling that 10 years too early could be the world's most disastrous investment decision. So is it right to have it in the viewfinder? Is it right to think about it? Yes, but calibrate its probability of happening at the moment. The timing is always really important. It's very important. So Hamish, you've been very, very generous with your time. I've got one last question, and it has to do with China. We've, in our funds, have invested a lot more in China, increased China exposure. So given what's happened over the past, let's say, year or so, we've gone through the COVID experience and we've come out, hopefully, the other side in the next year or so. What's your view on China? Has that changed? Is it still an attractive place to invest? Is it perhaps even a more attractive place to invest? What are you thinking there? Yeah, first of all, I'd say China is a complex place to invest. So whilst we are looking very carefully and we have been directing more money towards China, I don't want to underestimate the complexity of doing business and investing in China. We remain very positive in having part of our portfolio exposed to China over the next 5, 10 and 20 years years. It is an incredibly dynamic economy that's going to continue to grow. It will become the largest economy in the world. It will become the most important consumption market in the world. And therefore, you want to carefully and selectively have exposure to that. A lot of the world isn't going to grow at all. And China is going to keep growing. And I think what we've learned through COVID is China is an incredibly resilient economy. It started in China China is the first place to get out of it and start growing again and get the virus under control at scale. So China has proved to be incredibly resilient during this period. You say there's been a lot of noise around China, obviously the US-China geopolitical situation, if you say in the last few years, has been incredibly noisy. But there's also been other noise around China investing in the last, really in the last sort of month, the very large IPO of the Ant Financial Group was pulled in the last month. And that has spooked some people. That is a wonderful business. It's one third owned by Alibaba, which is one of the large investments we hold in our fund. 
it was unfortunate was pulled. I think it was a political decision around some intervention that Jack Ma had made. He's not an executive, but he is the controlling shareholder of Ant. And he really annoyed the political establishment and the regulators in China, and they've pulled that IPO. And there is discussions about regulating their technology companies. And of course, we have some technology-related investments of China, but we've also got other exposures like Starbucks and LVMH and others that have wonderful businesses in China. Are we concerned about facing regulatory risk in investing in technology companies in China? No more concerned than investing in Facebook or Google, which is Alphabet that owns that, or if we were in Amazon or Apple that we're not in at the moment. But I don't think those risks in calibrating those risks are any more adverse or probable, whether they're in China or whether they're outside of China. So we remain very positive about having part of our portfolio exposed to currently the second most important economy in the world and will emerge as the most important economy. But you need to get it right. You need to diversify. You need to do your due diligence. And you need to look through the noise. And when it comes to China, because of a lot of other issues, there is a lot of noise. And you have to distinguish between the noise you read in the newspapers and the reality of what's going to happen over the next five to 10 years. Yes, there's always a lot of noise in investment markets in general, but I think you're right in China. Given that it's not really a familiar place to a lot of people, it can be a little bit hard to understand. So that noise may get amplified a little bit. Well, Hamish, we've come to the end of this episode. I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time. Uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed our little chat here. And, you know, it's been a really interesting period of time, of course, with the election and also the vaccine. And and hopefully the vaccine, we said that there's a little bit of scientific risk. Hopefully that scientific risk goes away and and the vaccines and uh, the therapeutics, of course, are very effective. So thanks very much for your time, Hamish. An absolute pleasure, Arvid. And thank you very much for going easy on me today. That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking with Magellan's Head of Macro and Portfolio Manager, Arvid Strymon. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.